Hi, I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange. This is Conversations with Kelly, where I take a deep dive with an expert on a topic I'm particularly interested in. Today, I'd like to talk about the challenges facing Visa and MasterCard. These were two of the best performing stocks last decade, both rising more than tenfold. They aren't just card companies, they're networks. Their payment rails are used to process trillions of dollars of payments, but businesses do have to pay for that privilege. And lately, some big businesses in particular are starting to push back. Amazon just said it will soon stop accepting Visa credit cards in the UK. Could it drop Visa as its card partner here in the US? And why do companies now feel they have the leverage to push back against this seeming duopoly? Joining me to explain is CNBC reporter Kate Rooney, who covers fintech, crypto, and payments, among a zillion other things for us. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Kelly. It's so fun to be here. It's great to have you here. You know, we should mention that this was actually all like started with us being back in the office and you're on the East Coast and all of that is really fun and, and yay for, for just being able to see people again, you know. That was the best synergies. We were sitting in the makeup room and we're like, this would be a great podcast. I feel like that's how every podcast should start. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's start with the performance of Visa and MasterCard. I was just checking the stocks are down five and eight percent in a year in which the S&P is up, you know, 20 to 25 percent. The people that you talk to, what would they say is the reason for that? So you laid it out really well in the intro in, in terms of Visa being sort of a, a payment stalwart. It's been very reliable. It's sort of been more of a value name. This really started for Visa in particular. Um, this, the issues started and some of the headwinds started back in 2020. So they announced that they're gonna buy this company Plaid, which is it's an API provider, but essentially it provides some of the plumbing between if you use you know, a Robinhood or a Venmo or any of these FinTech apps, there's sort of that middle layer in between that. And they're the reason you can connect your bank account to a lot of FinTech apps. So Visa decides to buy them, it's a $5 billion deal, big deal at the time, uh, and seems to, to, be, to make sense. You know, Visa, Big investor in a lot of these fintech companies. They were an early investor, sort of their venture arm was an early investor in Plaid. Things seem to be going well. And then there are some DOJ antitrust issues. So they, the DOJ comes knocking on Visa's door and says, wait a minute, Plaid was actually working on a debit card or some sort of debit product. And that could be anti-competitive and we don't like this deal. And so behind the scenes, they're working it out of the DOJ in the meantime. The deal with Plaid, they call it off. Plaid is now a free agent, big fintech company. That's sort of a separate story, but that's sort of the beginning of the troubles for Visa. So they are dealing with this DOJ stuff. In the meantime, they can't really do a lot of M&A, it seems, and if they did, it would just call a lot of attention to what they're doing. So they haven't done any big deals since that started coming up. Meanwhile, MasterCard did almost an identical deal to Plaid, just at a much uh, smaller scale. It was called Finisty at the time less than a billion dollars, but does sort of the same thing as Plaid. So uh, MasterCard has sort of been able to continue uh, down the road of M&A. So uh, that was sort of the beginning of the M&A trouble for Visa. And then more recently, uh, I mean, during the pandemic, they had a pretty good situation going despite the cross-border weakness. So people were not traveling. They weren't going across borders. And when you travel and you bring your Visa card and you pay for something, that cross-border payment is more lucrative for Visa than if you're spending in the U.S. So they were missing out on that. But at the same time, people were spending more online. That was sort of supplementing it. 
and consumer spending actually was pretty strong. So Visa, they were benefiting in a different way, but they were doing okay during the pandemic. So flash forward, they've sort of been up and down. They have really seen a pretty good recovery as the economies reopened. Earnings have looked pretty good. Guidance has looked pretty good. But the big thing weighing on them now and what sort of started the more recent weakness was a spat with Amazon. So this started in the UK. Amazon said that they were going to stop accepting Visa credit cards because of the high fees, as they put it. And then the CFO of Visa came out and said, we are dealing with it. We expect to come to a agreement with Amazon. It's all good. And sort of said, this isn't an issue. But folks that I talked to have said that this could be Amazon sort of flexing their muscle and saying, we have the scale, we've got the power here, and we're going to try and negotiate when Visa might be in a position of weakness because right. they're dealing with some other stuff. Uh, so that's sort of the current state of things. Analysts you talk to say, you know, when Visa can buy a find a bottom, it might be a buying opportunity because fundamentally, and nothing's really changed. But I know Kelly, you've pointed this out too that they are facing a lot of other uh, potential potential threats down the line, whether it's crypto or you know a ton of different things. Absolutely, and and maybe we can back up for a second here and and talk about that. Um, Real quick before we do, do you know, has anyone sort of said for sure what Amazon might be paying Visa on credit cards? I mean, I've seen in most news reports, they say that Visa typically charges between one and a half and three and a half percent. And I would have yeah. to assume Amazon is, given its size, sort of at the lower end of that. Yeah, so I haven't got an exact number, but that range is sort of what you hear and what's typical um, of, of most of these cards. The other thing you hear is that of that percentage, a lot actually goes to the banks. So Visa might not be getting, if they charge Amazon, say it's 2%, Visa might be getting a couple basis points on that. Uh, whereas the banks, the credit, the issuing banks for the credit cards are actually the ones that might be sort of controlling the fees here. So one analyst sort of describing it as maybe it's like when you, <laughs> the teacher wants to get the kid in trouble and wants to to the kids been misbehaving. So maybe the kids are the banks. Visa is the parent. And they say, we're going to talk to the parent instead of talking to the kids so that they can be the ones to talk to the banks and say, hey, listen, we can't actually charge this much. And Visa is sort of the middleman here. So that's one way of thinking about it. And one potential uh, issue on the back end where it's maybe more about the banks than it is even about Visa. And they're sort of the, the ones that have gotten uh, in the fray here where the banks are really the ones that Amazon maybe should be talking to. It's really interesting because what you also suggest is that the banks are getting a free ride kind of hiding behind Visa yeah. um, so that they've been able to benefit from that, you know, that piece that they're taking, but kind of quietly without a lot of people realizing it because it just looks like I'm paying this fee to Visa and maybe Visa now needs to start breaking down on people's bills. This is how much Visa is really... <laughs> Taking right, right. I think the visa analyst probably would would like that. Well, the bank analysts would be like, oh, no, let's let's keep it the way it is. And there are big implications yeah. in what you're describing because if these fees start to be compressed because there's more competition, then what it means is that this isn't just a headwind for Visa and Mastercard. It's a headwind for banks, and people should be looking through bank earnings to understand how much of that is coming from you know, card technology and how much that might be under pressure. This would be a good point, Kate, to talk a little bit about the crazy confusion mess of payments in the U.S., right? I mean, yeah. why do we have credit cards and debit cards? What is ACH? 
Why does Plaid exist now? Why am I connecting Venmo and Robinhood directly to my bank account? Why is my husband paying $20 more a month to Verizon just to avoid having to connect to his bank account? But then I guess the younger generation doesn't care. It's a mess <laughs> out there right now. It's really confusing to the consumer. It really is. And one of the examples that people point to is in the UK, they have something called open banking. So that is a law that's required or set of laws that's required banks to basically make it easier to get your financial information and to plug into fintech apps. So they're, they have made it sort of consistent to say, okay, the banks are required to share your financial information in a safe way, in a, in a way that the fintech apps over there can sort of easily plug into. Whereas here in the US, it's been really left to the private market. And that company plot I mentioned, and there's others, uh, Yodely is another example, Finicity that was bought by MasterCard. But here it really is, uh, it's on the private sector to figure out you know, the easiest way to, to connect on the back end. I'm told there's not a lot of appetite in Washington to come out with a new set of laws and the UK and uh, Eurozone were sort of ahead of that, but it is a total mess. So you've got ACH and, and the ability to connect to your bank account. Uh, you've got debit and credit, and now you have buy now, pay later, which is another whole thing. And there's just a million different ways that you can pay for something. And I, I think part of the appeal even of something like a cryptocurrency and that whole market is just to simplify it without these middlemen, because it, it the piping behind payments is extremely complicated. And I think is for those who got in early and control that market and, and really are the, the biggest players in that market, it's been quite lucrative over the, the past few decades. Maybe one of the questions I want to ask here, because I do want to pick your brain a little bit about crypto in a minute, but you know, let's talk about Plaid, which now you, you mentioned that Visa wanted to buy them for about $5 billion. I have to imagine they're worth a lot more now. Um, why, you know, maybe they're going to IPO next. They're using this ACH technology that for a lot of us is very old school, right? It used mm -hmm. to be like the worst available option if you're paying your local bill. And again, I emphasize we in my house hate having to open our bank account directly to interface with anything, especially local government technology that you feel could be vulnerable to hacking. So where did Plaid come from? Why are we all of a sudden paying with our bank accounts? And is it simply because it, it is a lot cheaper? And is is that what the UK was doing with open banking is basically just trying to disintermediate Visa and MasterCard? Yeah, and so, so to answer the, the UK question first, I think it was more about data security because there's also a fear that if you let private companies do this, um, it won't be as secure. So I think the UK was trying to get ahead of it and say, we want a uniformed way to do this. And then data laws in general, and you've seen it in, with sort of the internet companies and in advertising too, the idea that, as a consumer, if you want your banking data, it's not really possible to just offload it and say, hey, I'd like you know the APIs and sort of the backend stuff to connect my banking information. There's no real format for that or way to go about it. If you called up your bank, they'd be like, what are you, what are you talking about? Right. So, uh, so there's that side of it. Um, as far as Plaid, so they it was started by a couple of Bain consultants, one of which is the CEO at this point, uh, but they had been, looking for, they, their first customer was Venmo. So uh, they were trying to solve the issue of quickly connecting to a bank account um, and to one of these apps. And the way that it used to work, it, I mean, it used to take multiple days to do this. The best analogy that I've heard is 
a hair dryer. If you've ever traveled abroad with a hair dryer, and apologies if this analogy doesn't make sense and, and no one's used a hair dryer abroad, but the voltage doesn't match up, or you know any sort of charger, you can blow a fuse if you're using the wrong uh, adapter, say with a hair dryer. So the hair dryer is the fintech app. Say it's Robinhood or Venmo. The bank is the outlet and the power outlet. And you need something, you need an adapter to make sure that those two things can communicate to each other. They've got the same volts, it's gonna work. The consumer, the person who's trying to dry their hair doesn't really know or care what's going on, but Plaid is sort of the wonky, they call it an API, but it's what connects and makes those two things be able to communicate to each other easily. So it is sort of, it's one of the back end sort of sneaky reasons why FinTech is actually taken off. And it's something we take for granted, the idea that you can connect your bank account to whether it's Wealthfront um, or any of these financial apps that, that show you, you know, Mint, for example, you can show where you're spending things and how you're doing things. That's possible because you can quickly connect to your bank account. So it's something that we don't think about a lot as users, but works pretty seamlessly. And that's why they have grown so quickly and are worth a lot more than they were when Visa bought them. So in hindsight, I'm sure the company was saying, okay, well, we agreed to be bought by Visa for $5 billion, but right now, six or eight months later, we're probably worth three to four times that. And I've heard from sources that it's about 15 to $20 billion. And it makes sense. If you look at even the public companies, the Squares and the PayPals of the world, FinTech just went bonkers during the pandemic with people using digital payments. And um, so yeah, so the company's done really, really well, grown a ton, and is now looking like more of a competitor to a visa if they start launching their own kind of similar exactly ECH products. Exactly. So let's pause for a moment to also point out that the really interesting thing about the payment space this year is not just that Visa and MasterCard have underperformed, but that a lot of even the fintech disruptors have. I think the last time I checked, PayPal and Square were still in the red for the year or close to it. Um, yeah. Payments and all those kind of merchant processors, they're down like 20%. So do you think that kind of the the broader problem for all of them this year is so much competition? And in PayPal's example, they tried to buy Pinterest a couple months ago. The stock tanked. Analysts were not pleased with it. A lot of them you know, I liked the one analyst in particular who was like, they need to kind of get into the real world. They wanted them to buy a, a payments processor, point of sale type uh, processor, for instance, even though that's super boring, because they're like, you should be more than what PayPal is now. And then everyone's right. saying, you know, should they go back and, and kind of joke about maybe spinning out eBay wasn't the best idea. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think it is worth reminding people that it's not like the fintech payment space has been a great performer this year. And do you think it's just too much competition? That's a great point. Well, all of them have billed themselves as the one-stop shop for finance, whether it's the single money app or some variation of that, that they want to be the place that people bank, that people buy stocks and cryptocurrencies. And they're all starting from different beginnings and, and starting lines. So you've got, you know, at a firm, for example, starting with lending, you've got Robinhood starting with stocks, but they're all launching identical products and going for the same mission of becoming the one-stop shop. And a lot of that growth is baked into the stock prices. They did really, really well during the pandemic of 2020. All of those companies were among the biggest winners for the year. You look at this year, Square and PayPal negative for the year. So I think it's, it's a couple of different things. More recently, it's that they, those companies trade more like tech companies. So they're high growth, 
price for perfection. Uh, I know that the term's overused, but every time I go into earnings, I think that that you know if they even forecast double digit, say it's 15% growth versus 20% growth, that's seen as a huge miss, right? Like these companies need to yeah. perform better than expectations to to convince investors that they're worth what they're priced at right now. So that has been one of the big themes, just ex- really expensive after the last year. The PayPal Pinterest example is so, so interesting. That came out and we reported, I talked to sources that said, yep, it's happening. Uh, and PayPal, by the way, was very upset that that leaked. And I think because the, the stock reaction was so negative and so quick and abrupt, it, cl- it was clear that investors weren't happy about it. And so I think they probably would have, if they did go ahead and do it, they would have rather messaged it in a different way. So it took them a little bit off guard. Um, but it was clear that yeah, investors were not into that. And it's ironic that they had just spun out from eBay. Analysts were really excited that they were going to have sort of a clean earnings going forward. You know, they're they're not tied up with eBay anymore. That's typically been some kind of a drag on transaction volume. And uh, they were saying, you know, it's all clear ahead, no more eBay. And all, all of a sudden you're going to buy Pinterest and sort of muddy up earnings again. So the analysts right. were like, what, why? But in some sense, like, uh, social commerce is a huge and growing area. So you talk, talk to some analysts who said, that kind of makes sense because, you know, if they can get into that more e-commerce, social commerce side of things, you know, it could work. But they've tried to do that with Venmo too, and it hasn't worked as well. You know, they, they've done it, but it's not necessarily becoming a, a social network or a place that people really shop and buy things. Uh, so that Pinterest example, though, was really interesting at the time. And very telling about the stock and the competition in the space and how difficult it's going to be for all of these players to, to continue to win. One last question before we move on from this, and it's a really easy one. It's, um, where's this all going? You know, like, so if you're Visa now and you're going, okay, wait a minute, maybe our bread and butter kind of card, especially the higher fee credit card business is getting, you know, there's more competition. People can use Plaid, they can use other apps, they can use all these different technologies, buy now, pay later, which, you know, maybe we should explain to people that is a rival network. It's not just a cool sounding payment option. It's a rival (laughs) network with some really interesting characteristics where it allows the seller to have a relationship potentially with the buyer as opposed to the way that it works now. So what are what are the incumbents going to do? I mean, it feels to me like there's going to be a lot more churn, a lot more deal making and a lot more regulatory pressure. The control of the currency gave a speech the other day, basically warning that if you quack like a bank, you're going to ultimately have to be regulated like one. Right. I think that is, I mean, that's a big question for these companies. They're spending a lot on R&D and fintech in general. Um, so they're certainly focused on it and partnering with a lot of companies. They are moving into cryptocurrency or MasterCard, uh, saying that it's going to allow crypto transactions. And I think that's been, they don't want to miss out on, on that side of things either. Um, uh, so big spending on their part, but the other side of this is when we, you go back to the Amazon, uh, topic of, of the fee compression and pressure there. One analyst pointed me to Walmart. I guess Visa got in a spat with Walmart that was really similar. Walmart and Canada, I think, uh, that they resolved it and ended up being really nothing. And it was sort of an attempt for Walmart to negotiate. And it never turned into anything. And they kind of moved on. So I think Visa is hoping that their strategy works. They're going to figure this out. And they are the leading card network and they'll adapt. But I think of this is the innovator's dilemma of you've got this really successful bread and butter of 
getting a slice of every card transaction that has worked extremely well in recent decades? And how do you make sure that that is protected in some way so that you still get, you're still getting in on the transactions and you don't want to miss out whether it's crypto or buy now, pay later, um, making sure that you're there for sort of the next chapter of it. And every time you, you talk to, whether it's the CEO or any of these executives from Visa or MasterCard, they talk a lot about the future and partnerships. And I think they're very much aware of it, but it's not clear, you know, which is the biggest threat right now and how you protect your core business, but also innovate. And I think that's an issue going back. There's so many examples of companies that failed to do that, the Kodaks of the world, but if they can figure out how to spend and use the power that they have and use their balance sheet to grow the company and invest in new areas, it could work. So, I mean, there's some analysts looking at this and saying, oh, it's a, it's a buying opportunity. Visa is trading at a discount. This is great. Um, but there was a while there where it didn't look to be finding a bottom. And it seemed to be getting the narrative had really shifted and the sentiment had turned on a lot of these payment companies. Absolutely. So if we were to kind of outline the things that have changed for Visa and MasterCard the past couple of years, to me, it feels like number one, the rise of ACH, things like Plaid, making it easier than ever to pay on the cheap and kind of sidestep their card networks. Number two, some of the competition from the UK and Europe, which are also developing rival payment networks for all sorts of reasons. Um, number three, the buy now, pay later phenomenon, which, you know, again, kind of goes about processing a different way with different players and, and different roles. And number four, crypto. So quickly, before I let you go, um, get, get to your family and, and all the good fun stuff, you know, that's happening, uh, you know, tell us in 90 seconds how crypto and its network could disintermediate these incumbents. But in all seriousness, you know, what Visa and MasterCard have done for payments is very much like a lot of the layer two networks like the, you know, lightning that are being built on top of Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. The idea being it's really expensive and time consuming to use blockchains like uh, Bitcoins, like Ethereum, which has really high gas fees. So these layer two technologies are meant to quickly process payments. And if they get good at it, if they basically can do on the Bitcoin network, what Visa and MasterCard do on our traditional financial network, then yeah, people can go ahead and use different apps. They can use Strike, uh, like Lightning Strike. Right. They can use, uh, you know, other ones that are out there that say we can process payments quickly too. We can move them quickly, but we do it with uh, a crypto type of network that has nothing to do with the traditional financial system. Big time. I'm so glad you brought up the Lightning Network. That is the one I think to watch here. Um, and for those who don't know, um, that is, like Kelly said, a, a layer on top of Bitcoin. So it essentially, the way it works is it sort of holds a Bitcoin almost in escrow. It does the quick transactions in the meantime. And then when those little transactions are done, it goes back and settles in Bitcoin. So it's sort of a, a side transaction. They're holding Bitcoin. They do these other quick transactions on the side. When that's done, then the Bitcoin can settle on the big blockchain, which is what takes so much time. And so it is sort of a, a derivative of Bitcoin, um, but Twitter is using it for payments and it's taken off in El Salvador. And it really is, in my opinion, as people I talk to, the biggest threat right now to Visa and one of the biggest uh, innovations, at least in cross-border payments and remittances, which are really expensive right now. Uh, so that's a, a really key one to watch. And Visa's interest in crypto, and we talked about this the other day on air, but the idea that really the, the whole idea of creating a cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in general, we'll see if this is how it actually ends up playing out as more institutions get involved. 
but was to disintermediate the visas of the world. So the irony of Visa and MasterCard getting into cryptocurrency, I think, is not lost on a lot of the early people right. in the industry who say, wait a minute, no, we made all these technologies to get around you guys. <laughs> we, this isn't the point. But I think the Lightning Network, Twitter is using it. Um, you can do instant payments, and they are way cheaper than the alternative. And I think El, El Salvador right now is the the big use case, um, but a lot to worry about for Visa right now. And it's like one of the analysts, I think you had to, on today, it might've been Power Lunch, Kelly, but he was saying, you know, not a lot has changed on the, in the fundamentals for Visa. Some of these things have been out there and these threats have been looming, but all of a sudden it has just, it spiraled and, and Visa has had to deal with this all at once. And I think the analyst community, it, everyone's just gotten overwhelmingly bearish. So if you, if you yeah. think fundamentally the company is still strong, might be a buying chance here. Yeah, I think that I understand when people say, you know, from the from the network's point of view, very little has changed. It's kind of like when people say, you know, EVs are still a very small part of the overall, you know, car sales, and we all go, yeah, but we see where it's going. <laughs> you know? right. And um, you know, and strike in El Salvador. I mean, none of this was the case a year or two ago, and it does, I think, represent something they're going to increasingly have to contend with. Um, as we say goodbye, are there any other companies, Kate, any startups or any under the radar publicly traded companies that you think we should be watching or storylines to be watching for here as this all percolates? That's a great question. I, I do think um, remittances and cross-border payments, um, the company Ripple was really interesting at a time. It's sort of, it's gotten into some, it's just stalled a little bit because of the XRP issues. Uh, it's in the US at least, but that idea of being able to send cryptocurrencies cross-border for free, I think is something to watch for sure. Um, so Bitcoin and the Lightning Network and Strike would be the big examples. Uh, I think the plaids of the world and Stripe is, um, not to be confused with Strike, but the company right. is also seen as a big threat to, and Adyen is another one, but seen to as a threat to some of the big global payments players. And we didn't even talk about like FIS and Pfizer, but those companies too, like this narrative of the global established payments seeing pressure, I, I, Stripe will, it looks like it's going to go public at some point in the next couple of years. So I think that will be a massive IPO to watch add in. And then some of the, the startup uh, payments companies. So whether it's Klarna, Affirm is now public. Some of the uh, challengers here and um, I'm trying to think of other good private fintech companies for you. Um, the crypto ones, I think. And then the other, you know, there's just a ton going on and people call it Web3, but- Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a whole nother podcast, but <laughs> on top of blockchain. Uh, but it's fascinating. I mean, I don't know. The other thing that might be another podcast is how regulators are going to think about all this stuff. So I think they're going to have a hard time wrapping their heads around it. I, I mean, I talk about it every day and some of it is- mind-boggling. And I imagine for regulators and lawmakers who are quite busy uh, trying to pass an infrastructure bill, <laughs> some right. don't necessarily have the time to get read up on the stuff. But speaking of infrastructure, this is kind of the new financial infrastructure, isn't it? It's, uh, it's so time. interesting. Uh, you did a great job, Kate, of at least helping me understand it as we continue trying to understand who are the disruptors and who are the incumbents. And who are the rivals and why do I pay with a debit card and sometimes a credit card and sometimes an ACH? <laughs> well, this is, I had a blast. It's always fun to nerd out on payments. <laughs> Anytime I'm happy to do it. I'm going to change the name of the podcast to nerd out. I love it. <laughs>
Thank you so much again. We appreciate your time today. Awesome. Thanks, Kelly. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to follow the Exchange podcast and catch our show live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern only on CNBC. See you then.